promises. We make all kinds of promises in this life, and some of those promises we're good on, and some of them we break. But have you ever thought about this? Why do we make promises? What is a promise all about? A promise is to assure someone. We use promises to assure someone that we will be good on something, that something will happen, that we'll make sure that such and such gets done. Promises are meant to give hope. Promises are meant to give hope. And if we do good in our promises, then when we make a promise, there is hope. But if we don't deliver on our promises, people pick up on that rather quickly. And they learn that there's no hope in our words. Promises are all about hope. When we tell our kids that we're going to do Culver's instead of leftovers for lunch, their whole perspective changes. There's a light in their eyes. They're full of hope. Well, this morning, I'm pleased to say we're continuing our Advent series called The Messiah is Coming. Specifically this morning, I want to look at three reasons why the Messiah was promised. Three reasons why the Messiah was promised, and I want to look at that from Isaiah chapter 59. So if you haven't already, please turn to Isaiah 59. And as you're turning, I'd like to give you just a little bit of background on the book of Isaiah. The theme of Isaiah is God does the work of salvation for his own sake. God does the work of salvation for his own sake. Interestingly enough, the name Isaiah means Yahweh is salvation. And that's really the thrust of the entire book. God saves and he does it for his own sake. That is, he does it for his glory. That's the central idea of the book. Now, the prophet Isaiah, he prophesied roughly 740 to 700 B.C., and he lived during the reign of four particular kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, namely Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Isaiah can be broken down into two major sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 39, which is an indictment against Judah for straying away from God. The second section is, is chapters 40 through 66, and this section focuses on the restoration of Israel that is to come. And you'll notice that the tone in that second section changes from judgment to comfort. And specifically in chapters 40 through 55, there's a message of comfort to the exiles. It's actually looking ahead to when the nation of Israel will be exiled, which, by the way, was some hundred plus years before it happened. And then the latter nine, or 11 chapters, 56 through 66, focus on the future coming glory when Israel will be restored. And it's in that section that we find ourselves this morning. Let me read. Please follow along. I'm going to read chapter 59, verses 1 through 8 again. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. 
Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them, knows peace. For your first point this morning, you can write this down. The Messiah was promised because we were the problem. The Messiah was promised because we were the problem. Hezekiah is most likely the king during the time that Isaiah prophesied, chapter 59. Now, Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, in 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, we're told that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. However, wicked kings had come before Hezekiah, and Isaiah prophesied of the captivity of Babylon that was to come because also Hezekiah's wicked son, who was to reign after him, was going to lead Israel astray. Along with that, at this time in history, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was invading the coastlands of Israel and Judah. He would actually sack Judean towns, and in 2 Corinthians 18 through 20, he actually threatens Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah, to his credit, clung to the Lord during this tumultuous time for God's people, but even so, fear permeated Judah. It was a dark time to live. The threat from Assyria was very real. And in addition to all that, we know from the book of Isaiah that Israel was not wholeheartedly serving the Lord. In fact, one chapter previous to the one we're in, chapter 58, verse 3, Israel is asking this question to God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God answers and says, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. See, what was going on here is that Israel was following the law. They were following the sacrificial system. They were doing what they were supposed to do, but they were doing it mechanically. They were serving the Lord, not with their hearts, but just by their hands. They were trying to manipulate the Lord through religious rituals instead of worshiping him for who he was. So they asked that question in Isaiah 58, 3, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And God takes the rest of that chapter to answer it, and then our chapter we're in today, 59, to continue his answer as to why he is distant. So that brings us to where we are, and look back at verse 1 of chapter 59 with me. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. What he's saying there in answer to Israel's question is, I'm not the problem. It's not that my hand is short. It's not that my ear is dull. I'm not the problem is what God is saying. I'm not the problem. I am not unable to help you. I am distant because of your sin. I am distant because of your sin. Look at verse two. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. It's not God who's the problem. It's God's people. That word iniquity there is the idea of guilt caused by sin. In other words, God's saying you're the guilty party. 
It's your iniquity who's caused this separation between you and me. And God's, God's not the problem. The people were the problem. And by extension, we are the problem. We are the problem. Last week, George pointed out our need for the Messiah because of this very same problem, sin. This week, we say, see that this same problem is why the Messiah was promised because of our sin. We are the problem, and so the Messiah was promised. Now, if this idea of sin is new to you, if this is not something you understand, let's just take a moment and explain it. Tim Keller gives this definition when it comes to sin. He says, biblically, sin is anything that falls short of God's will and glory, that violates his law and character. Now, you know you're in trouble when you need a definition to define your definition. Sin is anything that falls short of God's will and glory. Sin is anything that falls short of God's will and glory. It's God's will for us, in other words. It's God's will for us to be honest. Why? Because God is truth. His character is the standard by which we are measured. If I need 12 inches of wood, and I have a block of wood, but my ruler, my standard of measurement tells me that it's only 11.5, then my block of wood falls short of the standard. Similarly, if I lie, I fall short of the standard, which is God himself. God is truth. He's our standard by which we are measured. So anything that falls short of that standard is sin. That's what's being said there. Sin is falling short of who God is. But sin is also the human condition. It's not just what we do or do not do. Sin is the human condition. We are born sinners. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, it tells us, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once formerly walked. In other words, when you were born, you were categorically a sinner. It was your nature. It's who we are. It's how we're identified. The human condition is this. We are defined as sinners, and we do sinful things. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin separates us from God. Now look back at our passage, verse 3 of Isaiah 59. He writes, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. How was Israel sinful? Notice what they're being accused of. The hands are defiled with blood, their fingers with iniquity, the lips have spoken equal, tongue mutters wickedness, no one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. What's going on there? Injustice. Justice was not a common thing in Israel at this time. The poor, the widow, the fatherless, they were being taken advantage of. All the way back in Isaiah chapter one, God actually pleads with his people to do justice. And that's exactly what they failed to do. Verses five and six might seem a bit strange to our ears. Let me read it again. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. In other words, 
Israel was not only doing evil, but like snakes, like adders, they were poisoning others by their evil. They were encouraging others to follow them in their evil, and they were approving of sin. They were trapping each other like in a spider's web. And just like a spider's web would be useless as clothing, the sins of Israel are completely useless. Their sins, in other words, are of no advantage. Follow along verses 7 and 8. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. The idea here is that God's people were enticed by the idea of evil. They ran to it, and as a result, there was no peace and no justice. We are the problem. The Messiah was promised because we were the problem. Isaiah lays out here Israel's condition, and it's bleak and hopeless. Now, almost 3,000 years later, nothing has changed. Sure, our way of life has changed. Our technology has changed. We understand more about our world and our universe. We've learned a lot. Governments have changed. Kingdoms have come and gone. But the human problem remains the same. We are still the problem. Our sin still separates us from God. What does that mean to be separated from God? Quite simply, it means that our fellowship with him is broken. In Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve enjoyed harmony with the Lord. They had pure fellowship with him, but that was lost in Genesis 3. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this is a real downer for a Christmas message. Okay, maybe so. But you see, Christmas is all about the coming Messiah. And why did he come? To take the sin away. The reason Jesus was promised to us is because we were in this hopeless state and promises are all about hope. Now you read a passage like this and maybe you think, what am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to apply a passage like this? What is the truth that I'm, what, is my, what am I supposed to do with the truth that I am the problem? Quite simply this. Admit it. Admit it. Admit it to your Savior. Admit it to yourself that we are the problem. Each one of us is a part of the problem. You know, how often do we play the blame game? How often do we do that? We blame others. We blame organizations. We blame the system. We blame God. You know, I remember a dark time in my life when I was going through something, and to my shame, I actually said out loud, I blamed God out loud. But you want to know the truth? It wasn't his fault. We need to recognize who's at fault. We are. So I would ask, where do you find yourself in the blame game? It's time to stop pointing fingers and accept responsibility for our actions. How do you find yourself blaming others or making excuses for your sin? How do you point fingers at society 
or the system or government or some place of business or even God himself, all the while failing to realize that you've played a part in all of it. We need to acknowledge that we are the problem. So let me challenge you, when you sense yourself wanting to blame this or that or this or the person or that person, stop and consider, how am I at fault here? The Messiah was promised because we are the problem. Point number two, the Messiah was promised because our problem led to a mess. Our problem led to a mess. Join me in verse nine. Therefore, just, justice is far from us and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Our problem led to a mess. In verses nine through 15a, we see the mess that Israel was in because of their sin. There's no justice. There's no righteousness. They're in the dark. Israel finds itself in a mess. Verse nine says that they hope for light, but they get only darkness. They grope around in verse 10, stumbling even in the daytime, which is a metaphor for moral confusion. They are confused about what's right and wrong. And as a result, as a result of their sin, Verse 11 says, we growl like bears and we moan like doves, which is the idea of being in anguish. They are in anguish because of their sin. There's no justice, there's no righteousness. Only transgression is multiplying. They're in a mess. They're in a mess. Now, verse 15, let's zero there for just a second because it says, truth is lacking. Truth is lacking means people have no standard of right and wrong. You know, we see that in our day, do we not? Let me just open a can of worms for a moment. The whole transgender movement is a perfect example of the idea that people have no standard of right and wrong. Because truth is lacking, people cling to whatever whims come their way, even if it's denying their own gender. Now, these people need our love, not our condemnation. But I want you to see that the idea that truth is lacking is relevant today. We deal with this today, and that's where sin leads. It leads to a mess. Verse 15 says, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And at this time, Israel was so infected with evil that if you dared to do right, you made yourself a target. You didn't fit in. That was the pervasive environment of Israel. Why? Because their sin had led to a mess. And it's no different today. We are in a mess because of the sinful state of mankind. You know this. You see this. It's at work. It's at home. It's within family. It's within neighborhood. It's within city, state, country, world. 
we see the mess sin makes every single day. We see poverty, we see injustice, exploitation, manipulation, victimization, the list goes on. And you know that if you do right, you often find yourself a target. Because of our sin, we are the problem and our world is in a mess. To be truthful though, we've always been in a mess. This is not unique to us, this is not unique to Israel. Since Adam sinned, we've been in a mess. Just read the first few chapters after Genesis 3, what happens? The world goes downhill fast. We're in a mess. Now, I want you to notice something about this section of Scripture. The pronoun changes. In, in 9 through 15a, it switches from third person to first person. And that's significant because not only are we catching a glimpse into the mess that's been made because of sin, we're also seeing a confession. This passage of Scripture is a confession. Let's just read it one more time. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness, and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope around for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight, and among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God. Speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. It's a confession. I said at the first point that we need to recognize that we're the problem and that's true, but don't stop there. We need to acknowledge that we are the problem and then we need to confess our sin to our Savior. Let me ask, when's the last time you spent a significant amount of time in confession? When was the last time just between you and the Lord that you confessed your sins to him? When was the last time you got specific with the Lord? Let me challenge you, take some time to do that this week. Take some time to sit just you and your God and confess sin to the Lord. Confess him. He was promised because we're in a mess. But that promise brings us hope. So take some time to confess, but then take some time to praise him because of your mess, he was promised. And that's worth our praise. The Messiah was promised because we were the problem. The Messiah was promised because our problem led to a mess. Finally, the Messiah was promised because he was the only solution. He was the only solution. Read with me starting in verse 15b. The Lord saw it. 
and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render payment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord saw it. What's the it? The injustice, the condition that Israel was in, the miserable state that they were in because of their sin. He saw it and it displeased him. So what did he do? His own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. This is poetic language here. It's stating that God himself, after seeing the condemned state of mankind, took it upon himself to deliver man from his problem and from the mess that he had made. God is dressing himself in this passage as a warrior. He is opposing sin. And this passage reminds us there will be consequences for sin. Look at verses 18 and 19. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Now that's terrifying. As we think of the Lord as a warrior taking vengeance on sin, that's terrifying. It tells us that judgment is coming. Judgment because of man's sin. Man will have to pay for the mess that he has made and make no mistake, retaliation for sin is coming. For the enemies of God, judgment is coming. God himself judged his enemies during the days of Israel, yes. But by extension, he will judge his enemies in our day. A day is coming when God will judge his enemies. You might be thinking to yourself, you're telling us that the Messiah has been promised because of our sin. The Messiah has been promised because of our mess. Now you're telling us that judgment is coming. Where's the hope? Look at verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Here's the promise. Here's the hope. A redeemer will come to Zion. And that word redeemer, in Hebrew, it's, it's ga'al. 
And in our passage specifically, it means to reclaim one's own. To reclaim one's own. God saw the wickedness of man. And he armed himself both to defeat his enemies and to reclaim his own. We are the problem, yes. But we also belong to God. He was the solution, and he came to reclaim what was his. Sin had separated us from him, but he came to reclaim us by bridging that separation. A redeemer will come to Zion. Now, Zion, that's an interesting name. Many times, as you're reading through the Bible, it's a reference to the physical city of Jerusalem. However, the word goes deeper than that. It's a reference to where God is present. It's a reference to God being near his people. A redeemer will come. What's the name that Isaiah gives this redeemer early on in the, in the book? Emmanuel. God with us. Zion is God being near. Who is he near? To those in Jacob who turn from their transgression. Now, those in Jacob, of course, is synonymous with Israel, but in a broader sense, all those who repent, God is near. For all those who repent, God is near. God's salvation is available to all who repent of their sin and the mess that's been made and turn to him. So I would ask, have you done that? Have you repented of trying to do life your way and not surrendering to God? Have you, like Israel, been simply coming to church out of duty, religious, religious ritual, but God doesn't have your heart? You can give him your heart right now by simply confessing your sin to God and accepting what he did on the cross to pay for your sin. And we'd love to talk to you more about that. After the service, you can catch me, you can catch one of our elders if you have any questions. But let me say this. If you've never received Christ, what a better time than in the Christmas season when you can give God a present. You can give him your heart. The Messiah was promised because he was the only solution. Only the Messiah could bear the weight of our sin. We couldn't bear it ourselves. Now, how's the Messiah going to do this? Look at verse 21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Verse 21 is the Lord speaking. Actually, verse 20 and 21 is the Lord speaking. And what's he saying in verse 21? He says, my covenant is with them. Who's them? All who repent. All who repent are in a covenant with the Lord. And the rest of the verse says, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Now it's interesting, the you, Y-O-U, there in that verse 21, it's singular. He's not saying y'all. 
He's saying you. Now, there's some debate about this, but what I believe is being said here is that the Lord, Yahweh, will pour his spirit and word into the Messiah. That's what I believe is meant by the pronoun you there. And the Messiah's offspring, his spiritual children, if you will, his disciples will receive his spirit and his word, which will not depart from them. So what I believe is saying in verse 21 is that God's spirit and word will be poured into the Messiah and by extension to the rest of those who will believe. And it will not depart from us. Did you know we live in a unique time in history? Did you know that before the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, that the Holy Spirit was given sparingly and temporarily to saints in the Old Testament. In fact, if you remember, King Saul temporarily had the Spirit of God. And when he forsook God, that Spirit was removed. But friends, since Christ's work, since the Spirit has come, for those who believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and he ain't going nowhere. We live at a unique time when the Spirit of God is poured out, when the Word of God is before us, unlike any other time in history. What is the answer to our sin? What is the answer to the mess that we've made? It's Jesus, the promised Messiah. And through Jesus' work, we are given God's Word and His Spirit. See, in our human condition, our situation today is no different than Israel in in Isaiah 59. We are still unable to save ourselves. We are still making a mess of our lives because of our sin. But he is still the answer. He is our hope. Everyone in this room has made some kind of mess of their lives. I have. All of us have. And you know, you can respond in one of two ways. You can try to take matters in your own hands. You can try to see, seek to be your own savior. You can try to pull yourself out of the damage that you've done. But as we saw with Israel, their iniquity just multiplied. They couldn't save themselves. And neither can we. So what's the other option? You can relinquish your sin and your mess and put it into the hands of Jesus Christ. You can watch your Redeemer do a work in your heart. There's the hope. The hope is not in us, it's in the Messiah. So let me ask you this, Harvest. What areas of your heart still need the Redeemer's touch? What areas of your heart still need the Redeemer's touch? We're not perfect, we're not. So let me challenge you, relinquish your hold on whatever things that you cling to instead of Jesus Christ. Embrace his work in your life and watch him do a work you could have never done on your own. Let him claim whatever areas of your heart you still hold on to. Why were we given the promised Messiah? Because we were the problem. Because our problem led to a mess and because Jesus was the only solution. And that gives us hope.
pray with me. Lord, thank you that you were the only way of salvation. Thank you that you did not leave us in our miserable state, groping in the darkness of our sin. Thank you that you saw fit to become human and come to live among us and die in our place. Lord, let that truth go deeper in our hearts this week and throughout this Christmas season. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Forgive us of our sin and the mess it's made and redeem every part of our lives through the power of your gospel. Change us so that we may live lives that shine your gospel message to the world around us. We praise and thank you, Jesus, in your awesome name. And all God's people said,